You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. We're going to step into today's reading. Nehemiah, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest from each, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who had been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, and out the fold of my God, and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to gather with you. If we've never met before, uh, welcome to New City. My name is Will. Uh, glad you can join us. We continue to preach our way through the book of Nehemiah, centered on the rebuilding of God's capital city, Jerusalem, back in the Old Testament. And we're going to continue to consider some of the opposition and challenges that they faced as they continued this building project. And so let me just invite you to pray with me now as we consider God's word together. Lord, we just uh, together as a corporate body sang that we magnify the Lord. In other words, we exalt you. We consider your enormity, your splendor, your majesty, your 
utter perfection in every one of your attributes. And what causes us to worship even deeper is that a God like you, high, exalted, and lifted up, cares about hurting, suffering, pain-ridden people here on earth. God, we say together this morning, what must you be like that you are so big and exalted and yet you care from every unborn baby to every elderly person on their deathbed, your creation. And you care when your creation is mistreated. I think about Psalm 9 that I read this morning that describes the God of eternity, the God of the Bible, the God of all glory and honor, being a stronghold for the oppressed. God, you care where, when people are mistreated, when people are taken advantage of. It is a, a unique burden on your own heart when you see your creation conducting itself that way. And Lord, I'm also reminded that when it says that you're a stronghold to the oppressed, that you often care for the people who are taken advantage of, who are hurting, who are helpless, not directly by your own arm, but by using your people like Nehemiah, like the, the people of Israel that were walking with you. And in our own day, you use your church, your people, your saints to care for those who in many ways can't care for themselves. So God, this morning, would we as your people just take on a bit more of your heart for people who are hurting, people who are suffering, and people who can't do anything about it? Would your word, as you've promised it won't, will it not return void this morning? Will you send it out to accomplish the good work that you inspired it for right here in Nehemiah 5? I pray for your help in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as the people of God rebuild their city with the main focus on the wall, we're watching them now chapter after chapter face different obstacles. Uh, the wall itself is an obstacle. It requires very intense labor in the heat. It requires a lot of sacrifice, and it requires the entire community of Israel to be bought in helping rebuild the wall. Then we saw last week that there's this opposition coming from the outside where uh, God's enemies, the, 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 the surrounding nations, are watching this rebuilding project happen, and they're wanting to put a stop to it. And then as we hit chapter 5, we see a new obstacle that the people of Israel hit, not from the construction project, but actually from within. Because as the construction project carries on, there are a group of people within the nation of Israel who are being oppressed. They're being oppressed. And I just can't help but feel as I even say that word in our current cultural context, the temperature of the room changes just a little bit. There are certain buzzwords, if you will, that are uh, you know, central to, to controversy and debate right now, uh, that being one of them, words like oppression, justice, equity, social, exploitation. Man, all of these words carry a certain degree of baggage, and some of you may be sitting on the edge of your seat wondering which side I'm going to land on or how I'm going to handle these words, how I'm going to define them, and maybe whether or not this is even a church you can continue to be a part of based on how I articulate it. 
And I know many of these subjects have left us weary and exhausted, not wanting to talk about them more, especially in church. Um, But friends, this is where God's word leads us this morning. And what I'm thankful about God's word is that when we understand it rightly, it's never muddied or complicated uh, or leaving us confused. God's word is clear and direct. And this is the subject that God would have us consider together this morning. And so let me just give you just a a simple sort of statement that I came across a number of years ago by a Old Testament professor named Derek Kidner that so helpfully defines uh, how the Bible articulates righteousness in human relationships. That's sort of the question that we're grappling with this morning, okay? Like, what is right or what is just in the way that human beings relate to one another? And he, he just gives us this simple statement. If you don't get anything else this morning, just take this statement home with you and remember it. I think it's so helpful in understanding how the Bible describes righteousness in our, or sorry, in the Bible, relationships. In the Bible, the righteous, the, or sorry, in the Bible, the unrighteous person is the one who disadvantages others for the sake of self. The righteous person is the one who disadvantages self for the sake of others. Let me just say that one more time. It's just a real simplifying, clear statement in the way we are called to relate to one another as human beings. In the Bible, the unrighteous person is the one who will disadvantage other people for the sake of themselves while the righteous person is the one who will disadvantage themselves for the sake of other people. Nehemiah 5 puts those two statements on illustration or on display perfectly. In the first section of Nehemiah 5, which we just read, what we see uh, wealthy and powerful people in the nation of Israel doing is taking advantage of the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Israel for their own personal gain. It is a perfect illustration of those who disadvantage others for the sake of self. But then next week, what we'll consider is Nehemiah not just standing and opposing what they were doing or saying that it was wrong, What what we'll see Nehemiah doing as the righteous example is someone who is disadvantaging himself for the sake of his community. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at both of these examples in their turn. Uh, We're going to look first of all at this unrighteous example of the people oppressing uh, others in the nation of Israel. And then next week we'll look a little bit more closely at Nehemiah's example. Uh, We're going to look at the powerful people this week advantaging themselves on the back of suffering people in Israel, and then the repentance and the restoration that took place. And then next week, we'll look at Nehemiah's example. So as we kind of tackle this topic, okay, of oppression, I want to sort of look at three areas with you this morning, okay? Uh, Number one, what I want to consider with you is just simply the reality of oppression. The reality of oppression. When we encounter in this chapter, Number two, I want to look at what's the right response when we encounter impression, er, oppression. And then finally, number three, I want to consider with you a, a unique reason that the people of God have to stand opposed to oppression. Okay, so number one, the reality of oppression. Number two, the right response to oppression. And then finally, a unique reason we hold as the people of God to stand with those who are experiencing oppression. That's how we're going to work through this. And as we consider this first point, the reality of oppression, I'm going to step back from the text a little bit and do a little bit of uh, what I'm not even very good at. So I'm going to follow my notes closely. Just some, some philosophical 
political discussions happening right now under this theme of oppression. And I think it's important for us to understand kind of philosophically where we begin with this because I see two dangers represented in this room. When it comes to the, the, the topic of the people being mistreated or oppressed, there are two dangers. Number one, some of us run the danger of just grabbing a hold of some of the philosophy of our day and defining oppression by the world standards that will have its own unique set of problems. But I also recognize another group in this room that sees the abuses of that word in our current cultural context, and you just want to be done with the subject altogether. But brothers and sisters, the abuse of something never rules out the right or proper use of it. We can never throw the baby out with the bathwater just because something is being mistreated or uh, abused. And so uh, the danger, of course, that we have as we encounter this word oppression is that we just shut the door on it altogether. Meanwhile, man, the heart of God, who's described as a stronghold for the oppressed, uh, is unreflected in us and his people. And people who need legitimate help from the people of God will go unserved because we just don't want to address or, or deal with this topic anymore. Again, with this subject, well, I want to step back and consider just broadly speaking a bit philosophically where we begin with this subject, uh, beginning with a false view that's out there right now of oppression. That's what I want to work with you together this morning. So 20 or 30 years ago, oppression would be sort of a simple understanding. We would see it as the taking advantage of maybe the prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control of something. Because of kind of where we stand culturally, that's shifted a little bit. So there is a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. Maybe some of you who are into philosophy have heard of him. He's one of the more important thinkers in the last hundred years, kind of understanding where we are at as a culture. And he coined this term, expressive individualism, which describes how we as modern people find significance meaning, and happiness in life. Expressive individualism, he points out, as modern people, is giving significance to our life by expressing our internal feelings and desires. And I'm going to show how this relates to oppression in just a minute, but it's going to be important to understand this idea of expressive individualism. So previous generations may have found meaning and significance by looking to the values the customs, the norms of society, and conforming to those norms and values. Uh, but with this expressive individualism, what we find significance in is finding the things deep inside of us that we desire, uh, you know, the things that, uh, you know, that we maybe feel internally, and then giving expression to those publicly, not only to express what we feel on the inside, but also to, to then be celebrated for it. So uh, what, what we want to do as modern people is give expression to our internal desires and then have everybody around us applaud and celebrate kind of this internal individual feelings that we have. So here's just a simple way that it's illustrated, okay? Let me use uh, just the theme of dance. And as I talk about dance, no, I'm not endorsing one form of the other. Any dancing of not having to participate in my life or my, one of my three daughters, I hate. 
Uh, I get the privilege when I do weddings of not having to participate because I hate dancing because I just say that I'm a, the pastor and that would be inappropriate. Uh, but I, man, I don't enjoy it whatsoever. But like a hundred years ago, you know, there would be a big emphasis on ballroom dancing, right? With things like the waltz, which is, you know, this artistic expression by everyone doing the same movements, working together. You show up to the dance and you conform to what's happening around you. What do we do at weddings now? We get in a circle and everybody jumps in the middle of that circle and do they do a pre-established dance? You may have practiced it at home, but it's your own little expression. And then what does everybody in the circle do? No matter how terrible it is, everybody's applauding and celebrating what's going on in the, in the middle of the circle. Uh, but that illustrates kind of where we're at culturally. So before you, you kind of found your way by conforming to what's around you. Now you find your way by looking inside of you and expressing your desires uh, for other people to then see and celebrate. Uh, again, I'm not saying dance however you want. I'm just saying that illustrates kind of where we find ourselves as a culture. We find meaning and satisfaction by taking our individual feelings and desires and then ex expressing them, even then being celebrated for them by society at large. So then on more serious levels, it's not just enough for us as modern people to recognize that certain people might have certain sexual pro, pro, uh, proclivities. There has to be a month given to celebrate and, and to publicly show affirmation of it. Or it's not just enough that we could get a cake made at any baker. If anyone refuses to make the cake we want made for our wedding, a lawsuit needs to happen because what, what's happening? We are viewing that lack of celebration of who we deem ourselves to be as some form of oppression. Oppression with this emphasis is on my, on my internal feelings and desires is basically then just being disagreed with, being told you're wrong, or maybe even not being celebrated for what you feel on the, uh, as viewed as oppression. A uh, modern thinker uh, has some great thoughts on this. Carl Truman says the following concerning our modern view of oppression. I cannot tailor my inner feelings and desires to society at large, for that would make me feel inauthentic, living a lie. He goes on to say that previous generations might have seen oppression as damage to body or property, but our current view sees words or a lack of celebration of my true self or a disagreement with what I say as a means of oppression. Why? Because being asked, asking me to conform to anything that I don't immediately feel makes me feel fake, inauthentic, and therefore oppressed. So that's just a view of how we're kind of coming to this conversation with just the popular culture at large being disagreed with, or maybe even not being celebrated for what I feel myself to be is a form of, of oppression. What, that then, what then about oppressors? If that's what it means to be uh, under oppression, what, what does it mean to be an oppressor? Well, modern theories based on, you know, this popular guy, uh, Karl Marx, wants to break society into groups. There are two groups and with little nuance in between them. There are oppressors and then there are the oppressed. Pending on which group you are a part of automatically defines you as one of the two. So under this view, being an oppressor simply means that you have some sort of power. If you are in power, you get to set the norms and expectations, and being in such a position makes you a part of a system of oppression. So the key emphasis here on being an oppressor with our modern view is this. If you are a part of a group that has a degree of influence 
or power in society, you are automatically a oppressor regardless of your individual actions. Can I read one more quote from a scholarly person? One more, okay, and then, then we'll move on from this point and get into this passage. A guy who's helpful on this subject named Neil Shenvey says the following, because contemporary critical theory divides society into oppressed groups, groups, many critical theorists insist that our identity as individuals is inextricably bound to our group identity. It's important to note that the definition of oppression in critical theory differs markedly from the definition one finds in the dictionary, where oppression in the dictionary refers to unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. According to critical theory, oppression should additionally include or even primarily be understood in terms of power, the ability of a particular group to impose its norms or values or expectations on the rest of society. So simply put then, under this view of what it means to be an oppressor, it actually has little to do with your individual actions, what you choose to do, and more so just what group are you a part of? Are you a part of a group that has influence in society? Uh, then you're automatically viewed as an oppressor. Are you a part of a group that doesn't have influence in society? Then you're automatically oppressed. Being in an influence, a position of influence or in the majority may have certain benefits, but that does not make you an oppressor. Having a degree of power or influence doesn't make you guilty of wrongdoing. It's what you actually do with that influence or power that makes ultimately the difference. So that's where we come into this conversation. If, to be oppressed in many ways in our society is to simply be disagreed with or to be uh, someone to even say something that offends you. To be an oppressor, on the other hand, has little to do with what you do with your own life and more so to do with what group you're a part of. Let's set that aside, however, and now look at this real biblical example, because like we said at the beginning, the point we're talking about right now is the reality of oppression. What does real oppression look like? Let's consider it together in this passage. So the story begins with showing us a group of people in the Jewish community who are struggling. They're suffering. On the one hand, the construction of this wall has taken everybody's effort. So people, and so now there's not as many uh, back on their farms or on their homes have been working on the wall. Uh, and so now there's not as much grain or food available. Add on top of that, uh, in this story, it describes that a famine has also set in. So not only is everybody pretty drained from pouring out all of their effort and resources into the wall, a famine has set in, meaning that there's not uh, a lot of food to go around. Add on top of that, they're under the Persian Empire where there are very high taxes required of them by King Artaxerxes, and many of them don't have the ability to pay. So here are people struggling as a result. At best, they don't have money to pay the taxes to the Persian Empire. At worst, the people are literally starving to death. They are genuinely struggling to survive. But what makes them oppressed in this passage is not just the fact that they're struggling. That just makes them people who are suffering or having a hard time. What, what makes them oppressed in this passage is the way that people are relating to their struggle. So while Nehemiah might have seen these people struggling as an opportunity to express generosity, the, some of the wealthy and powerful people in Israel saw these people struggle as an opportunity for personal gain. Here's what it says that they're doing. 
A second group of people uh, are introduced in this story who are doing quite well for themselves. They have plenty uh, of extra money and grain to lend out. So what does this powerful group of people decide to do when they see their brothers and sisters struggling? They see it as an opportunity for further gain. They see the struggles of their fellow humans as an opportunity to become even more wealthy. They're lending money at incredibly high interest. They're giving loans on people's land that had been in their family for generations so that when they can't pay this incredibly high interest, they have to surrender their land. Some are even having to sell their family members into slavery or bond servitude so that they can have just a little bit of grain to put on the table. This, my friends, is an exploited... It's people in a desperate situation being taken advantage of and exploited by more powerful people. And the key word that we can just summarize their experience uh, with to describe their state is down in verse five. This captures it perfectly. It says, it is not in our power to help it. These are not people that just need to make better decisions financially. These are not people that just need to work a little harder than they'll be okay. They're literally in a situation where they cannot better themselves. They're helpless, it says. It is not in our power to do anything about it. But the people who are in power to do something about it look at their situation and say, hey, how can we make some more money off of this? That's real oppression taking place among the people of God. And we're going to move forward in just a second to talk about how Nehemiah responds and brings repentance in this situation. Man, before I do, let's just look, though, at our own day and age, okay? And some examples of where not just sort of philosophical oppression is happening, but where real examples of people are being taken advantage of who find themselves in a helpless situation. Let me just begin by giving you a couple subtle like situations that maybe we just need to give some thought to, and then a few very obvious and explicit examples. The first one that's just subtle that I would encourage you to give some thought to is simply this. So these are people who are struggling, and the people are thinking to themselves, man, in the midst of their struggle, I can save some money or make some money off of this. Simple, simple thing to consider. When you're having some work done on your house, it's often done by people who are in a just difficult living situation, or maybe they're here as an immigrant. Man, our first thought should not be in those situations. Man, how low of a price can I get this job done for? I just think it's helpful for us to say, not only, hey, what's a fair price, but maybe to even go above and beyond in that situation, to not view someone who's really just trying to get by as an opportunity for gain. Here's another just subtle consideration that is just going to take some just some, I think it would be one prayer for how you're going to engage on this kind of subtle area that's not right before us. I think it would be wise for Christians to give some thought to where our products, especially our clothes, come from. So we know one of the most horrific examples of oppression this land has ever seen was done in the name of cotton, as African Americans were enslaved for its production. Now, praise God in our land. That's been in so many ways overturned. The problem is that not, is it, not that it's completely stopped, but in many ways it's just been moved overseas so that the production of much of our clothes in an unjust way is kind of done in an out-of-sight, out-of-mind area. In the 19, uh, 1960s, 90% of our clothes were made in the United States. But what happened? Increased labor laws, things like that, uh, caused 
caused it to be where now just 2% of our clothing is made in the United States. And it's been shipped overseas to places where it can be made very cheaply, where they don't have labor laws. And so we may think to ourselves, when we're getting a great deal on a clothing article, man, we really got Target this week, when in fact what we may have gotten is a mother in Nepal just trying to provide for her kids. That's where we may have gotten a deal from. And I'm not saying here, hey, never shop at Target or never buy. I'm just saying I think it would be wise for us to just give some thought Are there opportunities where we could live with a little bit less, maybe buy more expensive clothing where we know where it came from uh, so uh, so that we're not uh, perhaps participating in this? Just something to give some thought to. Those are like some subtle areas. Let's zoom out and just talk about some broader, more obvious areas of oppression that exist in our world today. So one big one on our hearts as a church are for kids in poor communities locally. Here's the situation with a lot of kids in our own city. Both parents work very long hours. The kids are already struggling in school, many with a language or cultural barrier. Many of them don't often get meals to eat and live in pretty challenging living situations. But listen, that doesn't make someone oppressed is when some of struggling, they're suffering, which we should already have a heart for. What makes them oppressed is when some of the local fentanyl dealers see some of these young kids that are in their situation, and as they continue to go through high school, see them as a potential future client or dealer themselves, which is why we care a lot about getting into these communities, providing tutoring, providing an example of what a godly older man or woman looks like so that we can stand and fill in that gap. Or MS-13 members see that struggle that they have, not as an opportunity for generosity, but as an opportunity for personal gain, uh, recruiting them in the midst of loneliness and struggle into the gang. Or they see young girls as a potential gain through sex trafficking. These are real things that happen in our own city, real people who are experiencing these forms of oppression in our context. And another one for us to give some thought to is global slavery. So let me just read this story real quick off of uh, what came off of the International Justice Mission website about a 19-year-old girl named Manassi. Her mother became ill and died. Uh, She had large debts from her care, and so her family had to make hard decisions. The offer of advance payment from a labor agent seemed like the answer, but soon she, her father, and her sister were working long, exhausting hours at a brick kiln far from their home. Beatings and verbal abuse were common. The tiny sums of money they earned each day would never pay back their advance, especially as they had to buy their own food. When COVID-19 struck and the government issued lockdowns, she and her family and other laborers just wanted to go home. She said she was particularly concerned about her sister. She remembers that she wanted to be at home to care for her uh, amidst everything going on, but they tried negotiating with the people who owned this kiln and it went nowhere. When they decided to simply stop working and just to try to head home, the workers lost their cool and began beating the workers who were there. The men pulled out heavy clubs and just went off on a brutal attack. The workers were bleeding profusely. Manasseh's own own nine-year-old, the kinds of things in the midst of the conflict. That's just one small example of the kinds of things that are happening around the world that we should be mindful and aware of. And just the last one that I'll point out where people are experiencing modern-day oppression, we could go into other examples, but it's got to be said, is in the context of the unborn. You guys remember what we said a second ago about a characteristic of being oppressed? Is that you're helpless. There's nothing you can do about it. That's what the people were experiencing in this story. They were stuck. 
And there is no more helpless a human on the face of the earth than an unborn child. And yet through our switching of language, we just call them a a fetus, uh, or through just pointing to legitimate challenges, raising a child in this world, the broken foster care system, all of that, through pointing out stuff like that, we've somehow justified the taking of lives, often little infants that are torn apart in the womb with no ability to do anything about it themselves. We as the people of God are called in the midst of situations like this to be a voice for those who are voiceless, to stand in the gap for those who are legitimately being oppressed. And so looking at some of those examples of it happening in Nehemiah's day, it happening in our own day, let's just consider this second point. What is our response as the people of God when human beings are being taken advantage of in the midst of their suffering like this? What's our response? Well, there's some practical things. There's some things we could do to jump into action, uh, maybe some places we could send money to help these kinds of things, and, and we'll certainly cover those. But man, the first response that Nehemiah gives is actually very significant and very important for us to, to grapple with as the people of God. So First of all, he, he, he says down in verse 10 that repentance needs to happen. In verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. In other words, stop having these huge interest rates when you're loaning money for people who are just trying to put food on the table. But he doesn't begin there with just... Do you know what he begins with to stop oppression in his own context? And he begins with spiritual awakening. He begins with revival. Read with me back what it says in verse 9. So he hears the report and he brings charges to the people of Israel. He says, "What the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? What is the fear of our God? What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of God is an internal state. It's a heart posture. The fear of God is when you've moved from God just being an idea or an abstract reality to something internal uh, that you absolutely stand in awe of. You can go through the motions of religion and not actually have a heart posture that fears the Lord. You can even do biblical things and, and follow some rules without actually fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not a practical thing. It's a posture of the heart that looks at the God of the universe and says, one, you are real. Number two, in light of who you are, I stand in absolute awe of you. It's a heart that is trembling in worship before the God of the universe. That's where the yoke of oppression begins to be transformed. Why? Because all of this begins with a heart issue anyway. Uh, the, 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 the heart that looks at people suffering and takes advantage of them is an issue of the heart. And let me just tell you, some of the uh, most profound transformations of oppression that have happened in the history of the world begin not just with practicals, but with spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening. So in the early 1700s, there was this group called the Moravians. Maybe some of you have heard of them. 
They saw the state of the church. They were very troubled by it. And so they got together and they started these prayer meetings. The Moravians in the 1700s prayed. They saw the state of things straight 24 hours a day around the clock. They saw the state of things. It was during the transatlantic slave trade. They saw the apathy in the church. And so they just began to pray and seek the Lord. And they slowly began to send missionaries around the world. Well, fast forward some time. A young man named John Wesley is on a boat headed to America from England, and he gets around some Moravians. Prior to that, John Wesley was just a nominal Christian, meaning he just went to church, didn't really care anything about the things of the Lord, but he saw the seriousness and the devotion of these Moravians. And he says that through that experience on the boat with those Christians who were walking in the fear of God, who were experiencing spiritual awakening, John Wesley said he was born again. What did John Wesley go on to do? He went on to start a movement called the Methodists. These were people who were serious about walking in the fear of the Lord, about prioritizing their relationship with Christ above all else. Who did the Methodists go on to impact? One, a former slave trader named John Newton, who went on to write Amazing Grace, and two, a politician named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, as a young man, saw the devotion of the Methodists, and later on, as he uh, was born again himself and began fighting the slave trade, uh, John Wesley wrote this letter at the, year, at the age of 88, right on his deathbed, to William Wilberforce as he was fighting the slave trade. He said to William Wilberforce, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in imposing that appalling evil, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of our God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, William Wilberforce, finish away before it. That's John Wesley encouraging this politician, William Wilberforce, who through 40 years of labor went on to abolish the slave trade in England that ultimately led it to being abolished in the United States. Where did all of that begin? It wasn't just practical. It wasn't just social action. It was the people of God being awakened to the reality of God and persevering in his purposes in the world. And so I don't mean to harp on this too long. There are practical things. I'm going to focus more on them next week. But what we have to realize is we see problems, people being taken advantage of. As we see suffering in the world around us, man, the response begins with spiritual awakening. The second thing we see people doing that I'll just mention uh, briefly here is when they hear what they were doing to their people, they repented. They repented. They, they changed their ways. Listen to what it says in verse 10 one more time. Nehemiah tells them that uh, he's already lending out money and grain to the people who are suffering, and so he calls on them, let us abandon, I love that word as it relates to sin, let us abandon this exacting of interest. What is repentance? Theologically speaking, it's a change of mind and heart towards sin. It's where you used to view a particular sin as fine and you would walk in it, no problem. Repentance happens when you change your mind and your heart. And when your mind and your heart has been changed towards that particular sin, you abandon it. You say, no more, rid this from me. I don't want it in my life any longer. 
And so uh, the response that began with spiritual awakening, walking in the fear of God, moved to repentance, a real change, a real amending of their ways. And there may be some of you in this room this morning that need to consider repentance as it relates to how you treat people. Another area that, that we don't always connect to oppression is our use of pornography and how that's one of the main things that fuels and funds sex trafficking. If you are engaging in that, the word of the Lord to you this morning is to begin walking in the fear of him and to repent, abandon it altogether. If at every moment you're looking for repentance, to save a nickel and dime here for people who are perhaps doing work for you, man, the word of the Lord might be repentance in, in the midst of that. If you are a bit of a penny pincher and just holding on to as much money as you can, lacking generosity for the purposes of God or for people who are suffering, the same response that we see happening here needs to be seen, repentance. And then the final response that we'll consider together this morning is repair. Repair. Revival, repentance, and then finally, repair. So we see here that uh, the people had been taking interest in land from those who were struggling. And they were told not just to stop doing it, but to give back what they had taken. Uh, they were to undo the effects of what their sin had created. If there were areas where we have taken what does not belong to us, we are called to give it back, but I'll take it just a step further as followers of Jesus. I think this goes further for us. Not only do we seek to repair what we've done, perhaps in our own sin, but man, we should show up and seek repair even in messes that we did not create. Man, where people are suffering and we may not even be personally responsible for where they are suffering, there is an obligation on us, I think, as people who have been relieved of our own suffering through the work of Christ to step into messes that we didn't create. So maybe this could look like jumping in and helping out kids who are at risk in our community as you're able. Maybe it could look like having people who are struggling, people who are poor, migrants in your life, in your home, uh, demonstrating hospitality. Maybe it looks like engaging in pro-life advocacy, jumping in and helping out with ministries like CareNet. Maybe it looks like supporting uh, organizations like uh, International Justice Mission. We should look for things that have been torn apart by the sinful actions of other people and where we are able to step in and try by God's grace to repair what's been torn apart. The story goes on from that girl in India who had been through just difficult circumstances brought into this modern form of slavery, this mission, maybe some of the information of what had happened to her to the uh, international justice mission. Maybe some of you have heard of this. They were able to step in, get local authorities involved, and now she and her family have a farm of her own. She's taking care of her sisters that were uh, left orphaned by the death of her mother, and she's able to flourish as a human being because some people uh, with the heart of God stepped in to repair what sin had torn apart. And stepped in to repair what sin had torn apart. So God's call on us in the midst of the reality of oppression is to pray for revival, to pray for spiritual awakening, to repent where needed, and to seek to repair in any way the Lord allows us. Because remember one more time, the, the unrighteous person in the Bible is the one who disadvantages others for the sake of self. And the righteous person in the Bible is the one who disadvantages self for the sake of others. I don't know exactly what your response to all of this looks like this morning where the Lord may be mobilizing or moving you to serve in some specific way, 
um, what I want to close with, the final point, is just, just a unique reason that we as the people of God should stand with those who are being oppressed out of anybody else on the face of the earth. And the reason we're to do that has to do with our memory. Has to do with our memory. So in this story, as Nehemiah recounts what happens, he uses a very specific phrase and he repeats it twice. It begins here at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 5. Now there arose a great outcry down at the bottom, or down at the beginning of verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. What does that have to do with their memory? Well, when Nehemiah used those words to address this problem, he was using the exact the oppression phrase that the people of Israel used when they were in Egypt under the oppression of Pharaoh. What is Nehemiah doing here? He's calling their memory back to a time when they were suffering, when they were oppressed, when they were helpless to do anything about it, and how God, in the midst of their oppression, sent them a deliverer to redeem them out of their bondage. Now, you may be a Christian here, and you may have had a very fortunate upbringing. Most of us have. But if you're a follower of Jesus, what we have to realize this morning is that none of us are strangers to personal oppression. In fact, Jesus would say all of us at one point in our lives were enslaved. John 8.34 says the following. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We were all once held captive and powerless, absolutely powerless to do anything about it enslaved to our own sinful passions, man, enslaved to Satan himself. In verse 36, Jesus says, even though we were once slaves to sin, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Helpless though we were, just like God heard the outcry of his people and he sent a deliverer, man, God heard our outcry our destructive sin that we could not find our way out of. And he sent a deliverer. He sent Jesus who heard the outcry from our own sin, from our, our inability to help ourselves. He sent a deliverer to set us free. If you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, you are neither a stranger to oppression nor are you a stranger to freedom so that you may, for once enslaved to sin, God sent his son to deliver you, so that you may, in this room, sit where you are, free indeed. You know, as we get ready to, to come to the Lord's table this morning, I know we do it every week, don't, don't let the significance of this pass you by. The night that Jesus chose to set this whole meal up is so significant. What night did Jesus set up to do this meal? It was Passover. It was Passover, the night when the people of God had been celebrating for generation after generation how they were once enslaved, oppressed in Egypt. But through God's deliverance, they were set free and able to now walk in freedom and worship the true and living God. Jesus chose that night 
to say, take this bread. This is my body given for you. Take this cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. Take this in remembrance of me. Hey, if you've put your faith in Jesus this morning, you can celebrate that because Jesus gave his life, because Jesus gave his life, you are free. You are free from slavery to sin. You are free uh, from everything because Jesus gave up his life for you. If you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in the finished work of what Jesus has done, I want to kindly ask you to remain seated because we as a church family believe that this meal has meaning and it will only have meaning for you if you actually believe what it stands for. So if, you are, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, let me just encourage you to stay in your seat as we get ready to take this communion meal. And let me just recognize this, man. If you're here this morning, you're far away from God, you, you don't believe the news that Jesus gave his life to you. I recognize the very difficult predicament that you're in this morning. Put in your faith in Jesus. On the one hand, it's the easiest thing in the world. You put, man, it's actually the hardest for us as human beings. Plainly put, man, it is so hard for us to become a Christian. So hard, we actually can't even do it on our own. It's so hard for us, not because in order to become a Christian, you need to start improving your life and doing better for yourself. It's not so hard for us because there's a very high moral standard that you need to start living up to. It's so hard for us to become Christians, to, to follow Jesus, because we have to say the same thing the people in this story said, and our pride just will not let us. You know what we have to say to become a Christian? We've got to stand before the cross and say, I am helpless. I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do to make myself right or good in the sight of God. And in light of our pride, man, that is near impossible, near impossible for us to say. But maybe someone in this gathering, someone hearing this, is in a position where you can say, you know what, as humiliating as it is, that's actually me. I am helpless to save myself. I can't hold my life together. I can't even begin to follow God's commands and rules that he set before me. Man, if that's the position that you're in this morning, Jesus stands ready to save you. Our God is the helper of the helpless. He proved that by sending his own son to die for sinful, wicked people like you and me. So as we come forward and take this Passover meal of our freedom from oppression, would you remain in your seat and just take consideration of that? Are you perhaps in a position where you'd say, man, I'm ready to say, God, I'm helpless. Would you please save me? With that, let me pray. And as you're ready, come forward and let's celebrate our new Passover, our freedom that's been purchased by the shed blood and broken body of our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. God, I just come back to where I began at the beginning. You are a refuge, a strong tower to those who are oppressed, those who are helpless, those who cannot save themselves people who are taking advantage. This character of yours would be this mercy, this compassion for struggling people, people who are taking advantage of. God, I pray that this would shine through our church as we move towards broken neighborhoods and pregnancy care centers and maybe uh, people who live up the street. God, as we move towards people who are struggling and maybe even people who are being taken advantage of in the midst of their struggle, I pray that your compassion, your mercy would shine through us. 
And Lord, would you now motivate us, set our hearts on fire in the fear of your holy name as we consider that the perfect Jesus Christ gave up his perfect life. The blood of the lamb was poured out on that wooden tree, just like like those wooden doorposts in Passover. Your blood was poured out so that we who are helpless to save ourselves might find everlasting forgiveness and freedom in you. So God, as we worship you now, set our hearts ablaze with the fear of your holy name in light of all you've done for us to set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name.